Well, we have another global coverage for today, and we've got four of us talking. It's Bill Clark from Andover, Massachusetts. Bill, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Matt Coleman, you're joining us from Oakland, California. Thank you very much. Excited to be here. And our very own Henry Gale from, from London. So, Demex, you're a technology-enabled MGA. You look at both models and structuring, and the idea is to help enable the market to underwrite extreme weather risk products, but they're not catastrophic products. We're going to talk a bit more about that in a minute. Founded back in 2020, you're spun out from Munich Re and Verisources, quote, $13 million of funding. Bill, you're CEO. You've been in senior executive roles for the past 25 years, including a couple of publicly traded companies and some VC and PE-backed technology companies in both Silicon Valley and the East Coast. And this is your fourth CEO job. Matt, you joined from Nephilip, now part of Markel. Before that, you were Citadel. You've got 20 years of experience of weather risk analysis, structured financial products, and business development, bringing together climate science, capital, and risk transfer. So is there anything critical I missed off from that, Bill? So what Demex is focused on is the volatility in weather. What's key to understand about Demex is that while there's a very large and well-established market for risk transfer around catastrophic weather events, we're actually focused on the secondary perils or the non-catastrophic events. And the market data shows that that is a, not only a very large market, but also one that is in um, strong demand for innovation. And, and if we're talking about the secondary perils, and you mentioned volatility in there, what would be an example of the kind of volatility people would see in those types of losses? So that's a great question. So what the data shows is that the frequency of these non-catastrophic events, so whether it's temperature, wind, or snow, or something like that, as opposed to a hurricane or an earthquake, the frequency of those kinds of events has been increasing very substantially. In fact, it's five times higher than it was in 1980. And so that has taken something that historically has been dealt with at the local level, so at the local insurance level or at the corporate level, pretty much self-insuring, to being impossible to handle that way for some firms. And so that's where the gap is in the market, and that's where we've found ourselves with a, a major opportunity to help address that. Hello and welcome, Matthew Grant here. And as you'll have noticed, we're back talking about the weather this week. Well, we've counted over 150 companies now offering parametric insurance, all the tools to support it. And there are many intriguing solutions being offered. But what makes Demex particularly interesting is that it's not offering coverage for the catastrophic losses that tend to make the headlines, but instead it's helping insurers and enterprises get protection for the damaging and more frequent weather losses, sometimes referred to as the attritional losses, that are becoming harder to ensure. Well, we get a bit technical in places, but hang in there. As usual, we'll be explaining some of the new or unusual terms as we go along. And a new one for me this week, protection for a stub period. Do you know what that is? Well, keep listening to find out. Bill, I'm sure you had many companies knocking on your door. Why did you end up at Demex? Well, this was part of something that was undertaken by the, the primary investors on the board of Demex. What they wanted to do was bring in somebody who had experience in building early stage businesses and attenuating those to the exact requirements in the market. And so I joined in July of 2022 for that. And the one kind of personal note about this, because I was not planning on leaving the place that I was working at the time, was uh, I had 
happen to have a son who is a climate scientist, and um, I've been hearing about these kinds of perils and problems and so forth. And given my financial services background and insurance background, it got me curious. And the more I heard about Demex, the, the more interested I became. Well, it's different than my son, Billy, to ask me why I do boring insurance podcasts. So uh, he's <laughs> more, more enlightened. And Matt, for those that don't know Nafila, I mean, that was and probably still is one of the largest funds for alternative investments and insurance and one of the leaders in many innovative products. So, yeah, same question for you. What was it that drew you to Demex? Well, I've always had a, a very strong passion for valuing day-to-day weather risk. And that really stems from my training and studies in both climate science as well as finance and, and financial risk. And I had known Demex and its founding team for, for quite some time. And what really tipped the scale was that Demex had sharpened its focus and really identified clear unmet demand for financial protection amongst both insurance companies and other corporates. And I think what really became interesting as I got in and got settled was, you know, really appreciating that I'm a part of a company that is an unbiased and transparent third party to these transactions. And so the ideas, the products, the modeling we come up with can be assessed, you know, through that lens, you know, compared to, say, a protection seller or someone else with skin skin in the game who's creating products and and bringing them to market. Well, all I can say is the criteria for jobs at Demex is really high because your chief marketing officer, Steve Bennett, is also... Well, not also, he is a forecaster and weather expert. So I guess you're still open for applications, but just people should be aware that you, your skill set is pretty high to join Demex, and I think it shows. And in terms of your clients, are you doing this for the corporations out there, small businesses, or is this for insurance organizations or a combination of both? A combination of both. It's, it's for large corporations and it's for insurance companies. So Matt, I mean, we've just heard about the, the gap in the market that Demex is here to fill. Why hasn't that been filled already? Why is this type of weather risk transfer difficult? We're focused very much on what I think of as, as back page weather in terms of kind of the old school newspaper where the front page and the headlines go toward the catastrophes and the back page is where you go to find out the weather forecast and how might the weather vary over the next few days. And what's interesting is there can be a number of financial impacts from these day-to-day weather events. Some uh, cause physical damage to property, others more can impact costs or revenue, even though damage is not sustained. And when we think about the problem that exists, you can think of it first as a modeling problem and second as an underwriting problem. On the modeling side, the historical data of catastrophic events that underlay the models that quantify the risk can be quite sparse. And that's expected because by definition, those are very rare events. The opportunity on the modeling side is to leverage hyperlocal climate data because day-to-day weather risks have hourly and daily data going back multiple decades. And that gives a robust view of potential physical weather outcomes and helps us understand also how climate change can impact those outcomes over time. On the underwriting side, one of the problems is that reinsurers are increasingly excluding opaque risks and loss costs that are hard to quantify in price. And the opportunity on the underwriting side is to leverage first-party claims and financial data 
to train weather-driven loss models and ultimately create customized parametric indexes that benefit insurers and also benefit sedents because we're translating those weather outcomes into loss outcomes, which is ultimately what they want to better manage and transfer. Matt, you mentioned in there that reinsurers are excluding some of this. I mean, traditionally, reinsurers have been quite sophisticated about how they model risk. What is it that they don't feel comfortable doing that you feel comfortable doing at Demex? Or, you know, why is there an opportunity that the reinsurance companies can't address for this? A lot of the models that exist in the marketplace, they are built for purpose to understand things that don't happen frequently, but can have very high consequence and loss. And so that leverages fundamentally different types of data sets and methodologies to understand what types of events might happen when they haven't been observed historically. It's very important for catastrophes. But on the day-to-day weather side, we're seeing the volatility, the occurrence of hot, cold, wet, dry, snow or no snow, severe thunderstorms or no storm, and the underlying conditions that create those, we have a very good physical understanding because of the large volume of data that's there. And so that foundation provides a a very good launch pad for valuing and ultimately transferring these day-to-day secondary perils. And if I could add, I think the the second thing that matters there is that what we're doing here to be able to come up with a model and ultimately an underwriting structure that works for both the reinsurer and the sedent is we take not only this hyperlocal weather data for multiple decades, but we also bring in data from the specific client, and that data can be financial information, expenses, claims data, and so forth, and correlate the weather over the past 20, 30, 40 years with their actual claims or losses, which allows us to uniquely create this index that is specific to them. And that means that instead of Demex forecasting the weather, we are forecasting losses or claims. And that's ultimately what both parties want. They're not really looking to forecast the weather. They're having to rely on weather to forecast future risks. That's helpful. And actually, you both mentioned the word hyperlocalized. For for somebody that wants to visualize what that means in, in practice, can you link that to some kind of physical size or description? An example of this is for the severe thunderstorm peril, where you can think of an insurance company that has a portfolio of historical claims and exposures that go down to the individual address level. And the great news is that that financial and claims information is, of course, available at that granularity, but so is the abundance of of weather data and climate data. And so together, those types of data sets can be aligned, correlated, and studied to understand you know, how much of a driver is weather in producing those, those frequent claims that may not be all that big on a case-by-case basis, but as you aggregate them over time, can be quite significant. How have you found the market reception to these products so far then? And has it varied between when you're talking to brokers or insurers who might be sedents of this product or, or corporations? The market reception has been extremely positive in that this is not really a problem for them that they don't understand. They've understood this. And historically, if you're an insurance company, this all falls to retained risk, right? They always retain a certain amount of risk 
on their financials. They've always done that. But because of climate change and weather volatility, that retained risk has become higher and higher. And that's becoming an economic strain on the business. It either impacts uh, ratings or, in some cases, uh, solvency. So they understand this, but historically, they haven't had a lot of ways to handle it other than self-insurance, occasionally maybe an ag product or a stop-loss product. But those aren't really built for this specific set of perils, and they're certainly not as precise, and they don't perform as well as what we're talking about here. So the problem's well-known and understood, but the solutions haven't been readily apparent. And I guess the last point I'd make to Matt's point about the catastrophic events are the ones that make the headlines. The economic loss associated with these secondary perils is actually larger than the economic loss from all the cat events. It's even a bigger problem that this uncovered area now requires immediate attention. So just to understand where you fit in the in the value chain of insurance then. So you're an MGA, managing general agent, which means you, you're somewhere in between where it comes to the, the reinsurer provides capacity to you and then you sell through brokers. Can you explain a little bit more about how you fit into the equation and, and your relationships with those companies on, on both the sort of capacity and the distribution side? As an MGA, it's about what you would expect. You know, we're providing end-to-end modeling, product development and structuring, calculation and settlement services, and we rely on partnerships to get this done. And so on the distribution side, we work, we are a broker market, and we work very closely with traditional insurance and reinsurance brokerage partners. We work with other entities like global consulting firms, where they have a very keen understanding of the risk problems that their clients hold, and they're able to help us qualify those clients for those who are financially motivated to buy protection. Another important piece of this is that we also bring our risk capacity network to the table. So that puts us on the hook for not only developing an innovative risk transfer product, but developing something that is underwritable, that has been validated by risk capacity, so that ultimately there's a product that we're bringing to market where, you know, there's a zone of agreement in price for that protection, meaning that it can and will be executed and transferred uh, to the reinsurer. Uh, Matt, I want to come back to you that, that risk capacity question, but just going back to your point about the brokers, a number of organizations, when they've taken new types of risk to market, have struggled with the brokers to be able to understand what's happening. And, and they're obviously a key part of being able to both convince their clients, but also understand where the structure can work for their clients. It sounds like you're seeing a lot of success in that. What has been your sort of, uh, I want to say secret source, your source you can share about how to get brokers engaged and explain how this can help them provide value to their clients? Well, I think one factor that's quite interesting in all this is that the, the problem is so clear. And there are a number of potential protection buyers Cedents, insurance companies who hold this risk and have been struggling to find ways to deal with it and better manage it. And so that's something that's that's very distinct about this opportunity. So in terms of education, it's a relatively lighter lift for our distribution partners to have to educate because the problem is very clear. Where we spend a bit more time working with our partners is to just be able to understand and compare and contrast our risk transfer product to others that might be available in the marketplace. And that's actually become quite a bit easier over time as well, because in the current market in particular, 
you know, there, there's generally been a pullback of alternative products. And so that's making the discussion even easier when talking about attritional risks that accumulate and aggregate over time and a, a very specific pointed solution that's designed to, to address that. Matt, I found it really interesting in your earlier answer, you mentioned global consultancies as well. I mean, are you finding that as consultancies are starting to help corporations understand their climate risk better for reporting requirements or other things, is that something where your solution can come in and, and help them as they understand it and then seek to transfer their risk? Yes, it can. And when you think of corporations more broadly, which includes insurance companies and companies across all sectors, they're very rightly focused on understanding, listing, and disclosing the climate risks that impact them or how they impact the climate. The logical next step is to move into valuing that risk and putting a monetary amount on it so that it can ultimately be managed. After that step, then a decision maker can choose to retain the risk because they're comfortable with, with the amount that's been valued and holding that on their balance sheet, or they might manage it in some way with longer-term sustainability or engineering projects or shorter-term solutions that can be stop gaps and deployed immediately, which include financial climate resilience like risk transfer. Bill, could you bring this to life with an example of, of where you've actually structured a solution and what it looks like? For probably the last nine months or so, we've been working very closely with one of our distribution partners and an insurance company in the Midwest of the United States. And this is an insurance company that's over 100 years old. They insure farms and farmers and so forth. And what they've seen is that their retained risk has been going up. Uh, of course, like all insurance companies in the United States, they're required and it makes good sense for them to have catastrophic coverage, which they do. But that retained risk has been the problem and it's been escalating over the past few years. And that's become a strain on both their, their uh, AM best rating, but also puts their surplus at risk. So they've been very proactive in trying to figure out a, a solution to that, working with their broker. And we've partnered to come up with the, the type of product that Matt's been describing. To put a finer point on it, they were looking at historically somewhere in the neighborhood of, say, $10 million in retained risk for these kinds of events. Uh, year after year. But what they found in 2022 was that that was insufficient and that number was rising from $10 million to partway through the year to $30 million, uh, further through the year, $50 million and increasing beyond that. And so at a certain point, it becomes financially desirable to hold that much risk on your balance sheet, you know, the difference between 10 and 50 or more is, is too substantial. And so they began to look for other ways to handle this. We worked with their broker and uh, our capacity providers to come up with this offering. And this is something that is now viewed as innovative and actually more fit for purpose than perhaps what they had been looking at in the past. Bill, you mentioned surplus in there. And just for those people that aren't familiar with insurance language. Would one of you be able just to give a very brief explanation of what a surplus is for an insurance company and why the surplus being at risk is a problem? Give it as a, a form of, of retained earnings that are held by an insurance company to provide a cash buffer effectively against unforeseen circumstances. And so if a series of small to medium-sized weather events aggregate over the course of, say, a year, 
there could be an, an amount of capital set aside to deal with that. And that's effectively the surplus. And where the, the problem comes in is when the amount set aside is not sufficient to account for any unforeseen weather events where more accumulation of loss than expected ultimately occurred. It's really helpful. So does that mean that you might have clients coming to you where you get a particularly unusual year? And, and Bill, your point was very well made about you know, the, the level of losses that come from attrition. So they might get through the year and realize that they've actually don't have sufficient surplus anymore, which is then an issue for regulators and rating agencies. And they may come to Demex for a solution mid-year. Yes. And that's really the origin of this, of where this went from something that could be managed internally, you know, on a, on a retained risk basis to having to look for outside solutions. And then what we discovered was this was not anything that was all at all unique to a particular insurance company, but v many, many of these mutual insurance companies in the United States are faced with this exact problem. And so the, the market is now looking for this. And to some degree, it goes to the question earlier about what's the reception of the brokers. Um, the brokers are here this from their clients because of the, the weather events the last few years. So this is more of a market pull opportunity for people who serve these kinds of needs as opposed to an innovation that's being pushed on the market. And so in terms of a risk period, you'll absolutely see someone potentially desiring, you know, what's called a stub period where maybe the year has already started and there's been an accumulation of loss that's intolerable. And so they'll, they'll think about, okay, how could I potentially transfer this? There's obviously a, a price that will come along with that when you're responding dynamically to what you're seeing in the current year. And so because of that, we also see interest in just, you know, planning ahead and thinking about, okay, for the next 12 months, if I'm going to protect myself against the catastrophic portion of my tower of risk from ground up going through what's retained up to, to the, the catastrophic level. Let me also look at that layer of protection that could potentially help me that sits between, you know, that ground up retention and the catastrophic, which, which is where, you know, this kind of product can slide in and address those, those more frequent, less severe risks. Well, 30 years of me in insurance and 230 podcasts, and this is the first time I've heard about stub protections. I mean, how do you see this trend continuing? Is there going to be more demand for this in the future? You have two factors. One is that climate change is real and it's causing volatility. So I think the, the consensus view of both business and science is that climate change is not going to suddenly cease and it, we're not going to go back to the days of where things were more predictable on the weather side. Um, if anything, they may get more volatile, but th they're not going to go the other direction, certainly not over a decade or more. And then the second aspect is just the effect that has on the insurance industry overall, the types of products that are available. Matt mentioned that some of the uh, the catastrophic offerings are uh, becoming more limited. They're being more constrained in what they cover or the particular terms. So you have these, these dual forces that are causing that. And I really don't see that changing. I think the real ask here is for the entire industry to figure out a way to be innovative, but in a way that things can actually transact. And that's the challenge. It's a gigantic gigantic problem-solving exercise, but there are a lot of good people working on this and the market is demanding it. And as we all know, when there's a big market opportunity, people will rise to the challenge and fill those. If you maybe bring this to life, could you give us an example of a specific peril maybe of, of where you've seen some demand for this and how you've been able to respond to the needs of your clients? 
an area of focus has been around severe thunderstorms. And the idea that severe thunderstorm events and what they're made of, hail, strong winds, strong rain, thunderstorms in general, are becoming more frequent and unpredictable. And so when you look at places like the central United States, where there's a lot of exposure to these events, you know, that presents an opportunity to meet that demand and, and help close that protection gap. And when we think about agility and adaptability, there's a tremendous opportunity to scale and help insurance companies who are retaining other types of risks like river flood in the UK, like drought in places like Australia or California, and thinking about winter storms and how they occur on multiple continents, and then thinking more broadly about corporates in general, you know, there are other sectors that are highly weather-dependent, spanning energy, renewable energy, agriculture, construction, just to name a few. And so what's what's really exciting is this notion of, of breaking these exposures down to their components into a way that can be modelable to address these problems, regardless of, of where they occur and, and what the type of day-to-day weather peril is. And then I want to come back, Matt, to what you mentioned earlier about risk capital or capacity. So Munich Re provided some of your original capacity. You, you talked a bit about some of the challenges that reinsurers have had to be able to model this, but ultimately your capacity providers need to get comfortable and to some extent, I assume, analyze what they're bringing onto their book. So it'd be good to hear a little bit about who your capacity is and, and also how do you convince them that you know what you're offering is suitable for their own risk appetite? Yes, absolutely. I've had a long-standing productive relationships with Munich Re, with Nafila and Markel, and they continue to provide us risk capacity. More generally, we find that when it comes to secondary perils in particular, uh, these more frequent weather risks that risk capacity desires portfolio diversification to complement their book of business that tends to be relatively focused on peak perils like the hurricanes and earthquakes. They desire robust lost modeling where they can feel like they're they're modeling risk in a framework that is specifically built to address attritional, more frequent climate risks. And also thinking about the problem of predictable loss costs and potential inflation of, of claims. And when packaging the risk as we are in this kind of clean form with very clean, understandable settlement that is ultimately parametric, we've seen a a lot of positive reception from risk capacity. And so we're actively expanding our network to include traditional reinsurers, traditional capital markets players, and also a number of insurance-linked securities investment funds who sit somewhere between those two in terms of the, the type of capital that they bring and risk capacity they bring to the market. You talked a bit about some of the perils globally, but in terms of the capacity, what are you finding geographically between the US, Bermuda, Asia, and and Europe for coverage? We see demand and appetite globally, regardless of, you know, geographic domicile, regardless of market of preference in terms of transacting risk. And so that spans many of markets that we tend to think about from Lloyd's to the Bermuda market to North America and and beyond. And so there's truly been a global um, positive response and desire to to source this type of risk. And then partnership is something that almost every company is talking about, you know, very critical of your MGA. By definition, you, you need to have partners. 
But you've also got, in your case, to access data and analytics. So it'd be good to understand what is your strategy for partnership and are you open to other people approaching you to help you get access to new types of data? We don't have any specific data partners to name, and that's largely because we're agnostic to the type of climate data or financial data that we source as inputs to our modeling process. And we purposefully built our platform in that way so that regardless of the form of the data or the source, you know, we can just have the latest and greatest. What's going to help us train and build the, the best models that best reflect the financial exposure of the, the potential protection buyer. And so as we think about, you know, growing our network of partnerships around data, we're open to, to speaking to anyone who may have more innovative technology or weather measurements, or even thinking about translating those weather measurements into something that is, that is impactful financially. Well, we have a lot of them listening, and we have got a number of reports for the companies in, and we've also got our Atlas database now with over 700 companies. So, Matt, if you're looking for some more inspiration and want to look by specific topics, please do uh, ask Atlas or ask Henry, and we'd be delighted to uh, reveal some information for you. On that similar topic, Bill, you were very good enough to support mm -hmm. Demex joining Instate as a corporate member. I'd love to hear what it was that motivated you to do that. As an innovative company, an early stage company, we had invested a lot of time and effort in uh, looking at the market, coming up with unique solutions, understanding the partner networks that we needed to create. But the hard thing for any early stage company to develop is an audience. And that's what we needed. We needed access to the right kinds of people, the decision makers at our prospective customers and partners. And as we looked around the globe for this specific industry, for the, the insurance world, Instech was the choice. It was a hands-down obvious selection, just given your network and, and the contacts that you have and events like this of where you're able to share information across this market and help everyone learn more about what's happening in the industry, whether it's uh, challenges to be overcome or innovative new products that are coming to market. Well, thank you for your support. And just as we get close to wrapping up, for all those people who want to learn more about Demex, what would you recommend them doing next? Our website, uh, thedemexgroup.com, or they can reach out to us, um, to myself or to Matt, and we'll be happy to go into more depth about any of the elements we touched on today. Thank you. Well, and also we will be doing a LinkedIn post on this so people can uh, comment live and you can see what they're saying and who's, who's saying it. And then finally, just for the, the last few seconds, Bill, what would you like people to remember about Demex when someone says to them, what was that discussion around Demex that was on the podcast last week? What should they remember? Climate change is causing this um, phenomenal gap in the market around secondary perils, the non-catastrophic world. And historically, that's been very hard to address. And that's what Demex is focused on. And we've solved it in a unique way with our cadre of partners. And we're just now bringing that to market. Bill, Matt, it's been great talking to you. We heard a lot about Demex before we got to know you even better. And it's really intriguing to see what you're doing to, to fill this gap and, and tackle attritional weather that's not being covered by other forms of coverage. Very much look forward to seeing you face-to-face, -face, either in the US or in London. And thank you. Wish you best wishes for the end of the day. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I expect we're going to be hearing a lot more about Demex. And if you're working in insurance and would like to learn more about how we can help you build your knowledge about the top innovation themes in technology, 
data and analytics and insurance or your partners, then head over to www.instech.co or contact me, Matthew Grant. And if you, like Demex, want to get the benefit of our network and get closer to your potential partners because you're building technology or providing data and analytics, then please do contact me via LinkedIn or any of us, hello, at instech.co. That's it. We're done.